Welcome back to the latest episode of the Security Sprint. This is a security podcast where we go beyond the headlines and talk about security and risk news and bring about a different perspective, as well as talk about some of the news or events that you may have missed. We know there's a lot out there, so we want to try to bring you some of the ones that we found interesting or unique. Uh, this is a sprint, so the way it works is we go through two rounds of topics and do some quick hits at the end, which I lovingly dub Andy's quick hits because he likes to he likes to have a lot of quick hits. Uh, yeah, so with that, an implication there, I think you're saying something there, Dave. What I, I, I what? look, I mean, what's what's the old adage? If it fits, you know, if the <laughs> but I, I can't even remember what the adage is. But it, <laughs> but if it if it works, it it fits there. Right? So Andy, welcome back. Uh, last week I had uh, Jennifer Lynn Walker, our great cybersecurity evangelist, in here talking, uh, and I get you back after your rest and relaxation. Andy, how was your time off? It's a sprint, so be quick. It, it was good. Was that fast <laughs> enough? That's fast enough. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It is good to have you back, and I see you. You know, you're outside enjoying the the great weather. And as the weatherman, I am. We'll be calling out a quick hit around the severe weather that has been dominating much of the country as around the world. But Andy, this is a quick. This is a security sprint. We're going to jump into round one topics. You're back into the mix. I'm going to give you the uh, right to first uh, go on, on your round one topic, Andy. Well, I appreciate that, Dave, and I'll, I'll jump right into things. Before I do, I'll say so you're going to talk about weather. I could have used your counsel yesterday. I went out for a, a run yesterday, and it was so warm and humid out here. My heart rate got to the max level in, like, I think it was uh, 32 seconds and never went back down because it was just so unbelievably warm. So I could have used your good counsel on how to properly manage uh, heat-related threats. But I'll save that when you get into severe weather forever you might take us. And I'll get into a couple of related uh, lead items for me today, and we'll take them into one, two. But um, the first one is with last week's release of the Biden-Harris administration's National Cybersecurity Strategy Implementation Plan. And I think uh, there have been comments on both sides of the aisle about the plan, like there always will be, supportive and, and non-supportive. But just to sort of touch on it real quick, some of the highlights of it, there's the plan is based on five pillars, which I think are important um, to understand. Uh, we won't get into them in depth, but just to read them off, pillar one, and we'll come back to this one, is defending critical infrastructure. Pillar two, disrupting and dismantling threat actors. Pillar three, shaping market forces and driving security and resilience. Pillar four, investing in a resilient future. And pillar five, forging international partnerships to pursue shared goals. And DHS, CISA, uh, the administration with other partners is already leaning into all of these areas. But the one that really jumped out at me is pillar one, defending critical infrastructure. And if you read the plan, it talks about a few things that are really important. The one that, that is most uh, interesting to me is strategic objective 1.2, which is scale public-private collaboration, which is talking all about information sharing analysis centers and organizations, ISACs and ISALs, which is really good to see. Here we are in 2023. It's been 25 years since President Clinton initially conceived the idea of the ISACs. And here we are with the president's plan now and the strategy now, and we're seeing the continued support for the information sharing model. It's good to see it codified here. There's a lot of work to be done. The, the, the cybersecurity strategy talks about that. So the continued coordination is necessary between CISA and the private sector. I think it's really good to see that continued emphasis on partnership. It's being put into place up front in the strategy. And I think it's really important. It kind of shows the priority of it. And there's a lot of work to be done on both sides, the public sector side and the private sector side. So the strategy gets into other things too, gets into one of our friend Jennifer Lynn Walker's favorite topics, SBOMs, software bills of materials, it gets into a lot of other topics as well. 
But this section here, uh, starting on page, let me just tell you, page 10, again, objective uh, 1.2, I think is a really great place to start. And certainly an area that we put a lot of time and effort into in the work that we do at Gay 15 with many of our partners. Dave, any thoughts on the strategy? Have you had a chance to look at it yet? Or are any thoughts on the private sector relationship? Well, I think this, I know you, you've you always been on this from the very beginning, and critical infrastructure really is such an important element of this. Look, government partners, like they have to do this. This is the direction for the government. I, it's so important, though, that the these organizations uh, in the private sector also get on board behind us. Use this as a model to start looking at what their own security postures cybersecurity postures are, and how do we align and connect to those? I mean, these are, look at these as like just national level requirements and how do we fit in nests underneath there? And you called out that partnership area. And look, it, or uh, I, I know, you know, ISACs, they're not free, right? The ISACs and ISALs are not free, but they are important to building out that structure and understanding of what the threat environment is like, what are the resources that can be leveraged, and, and really that partnership and community that we all need as part of our, our collective defense. Look, if we're going to try to take on the threat actors alone, have at it. You know, best of luck. I, I wish you the best. It's not going to be a successful approach. We really need that collaboration between the government as well as our other private sector partners to, to understand and, and protect against the holistic threat. Because a risk by somebody who is not tied in or connected has those downstream effects. And, and I think this is a really great strategy. I mean, look, I haven't gone into all the weeds. I haven't gone into every little nuance and uh, of it. But look, setting that strategy is so important. I really encourage everybody to get after it and read it. And if you're not part of an ISAC or ISAO, really look at it. They're, they are blowing up right now because people are seeing a lot of the value and the understanding of how to connect and share information and build that collective defense. So that's that's where I'd go, Andy. Yeah, I agree, agree David. You know, ISACs and ISACs aren't free because they have operating expenses like any other organization right. does security isn't you know free in any way at all it's, it's part of you know running a business there's a certain cost that comes along with it and i think you know the government's looking at it i think for industry we're looking at it and i think we're seeing more and more emphasis from insurers on you know are you connected to your community are connected with your isac or isa are you talking to your colleagues do you understand the threat environment i think as CISO come under increasing scrutiny and cybersecurity insurance becomes you know a little bit more uh not challenging to get, but you have to sort of like show that you're doing the right thing to qualify. Uh, I think it's going to be even more important organizations plug in, tie in, and share in this eco information sharing ecosystem. So a lot more to get into this, but as you always like to say, Dave, it's a sprint. So I'll pause. I'm going to come back to it a little bit in my next comment, but I'll give the ball back to you, sir. Awesome, Andy. Well, that's great. I'm glad you could pull up uh, and pull in those uh, cybersecurity angle. I'm going to go now on my round one topic to a little bit of the physical security side. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Dave's talking about physical security. Uh, look, the, the reality is last week on, on the 14th of July, a new report came out from the USA Today that, that has been working with Northwestern University and the Associated Press really to document uh, mass killings uh, since 20, 2006. And, it, and since that time, there's been over 2,900 fatalities and over 560 uh, mass killings. And they define mass killings a little bit different than, than, um, than some other groups. We've talked previously on this podcast and other podcasts about the U.S. Secret Service report um, but that was released earlier this year. They define, it, and whereas uh, a lot of groups will say four or more fatalities or injuries as part of a um, uh, what what marks an incident. Uh, in this case, they're talking about very strictly 
four more people, excluding the offender, excluding that, that threat actor who initiated it, were killed within a 24-hour time frame. Um, it looked at a lot of different variables, including analysis around each incident, the offender, victims, and weapons, trying to draw out a lot of data points that can be useful for organizations to go through. And, and I think it's just really important as we go through these that to, to see how it all plays out. Look, I think one of the things this report called out is while you know schools and faith-based organizations and some of these other environments get a lot of attention, the reality is a lot of these shootings and incidents occur at residence or in shelters or other types of um, those residents. In fact, is more than four to one uh, from residents to everything else. Uh, but again, you saw from the commercial, retail, and entertainment space, there were 58. Uh, in the open spaces, which is like public venues, there's 38. Then you get into schools, houses of worship, government, um, government facilities. So it breaks that down. And again, this is not to minimize, hey, if you're lower on the list, it's less of a risk. This is really just trying to put a lot of things into perspective so that you can make risk-based decisions on how you're going to do security and stuff. I think there's a lot of interesting information around uh, you know, some of the backgrounds of these offenders, what made up these incidents and what what drove a lot of those areas. So a lot of that information is in the report. We'll put the link in there. But Andy, this really talks about, I think one of the big things that they called out, and this is something that we've talked about at Gate 15, especially when we looked at those hostile events preparedness series, those series of webinars that we did over the years, as well as the hostile events attack cycle that is posted to the gate15.global website, um, as also as fires weapon. The focus is not necessarily on demographics. You can get lost in saying this guy looks like or this person looks like a, a threat actor and therefore they are. That, that's not it. We need to look at behaviors and understand behaviors that lead to that. And this is what that report really focused in on. Behaviors, not demographics or profiling, because people who you would think look like the threat actors are not the ones that are really doing these type of incidents. So, Andy, great report that's out. Uh, we will put the links in here in the in the podcast notes. Uh, but thoughts on that, Andy? Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think you got it, Dave. I mean, it, it is a really good report. It's good to see the way it was captured and summarized. You've done a great job, both with the House Events Attack Cycle white paper. Um, our colleague Damian Wilkin, you have done a great job with the HEPs webinars and you know, teaching partners around the country about the importance of the hospital attack cycle and understanding those behavioral indicators, right? That um, you can you can absolutely profile, but not based on looks and appearances, but rather you can profile by behaviors. We make that point all the time. I think it's really critical in this report, really, I think, helps support that idea. And, you know, uh, the timing of it is is coincides with the promotion we're actually running this month for um, hostile events and active shooter exercises. You can go to the Gifting homepage and see that. We sent some promotional materials out about that. Happy to send along to anybody that's listening that would like those. But the important thing to take away is that this threat, like ransomware, like other threats we talk about on a regular basis, isn't going anywhere. And so organizations have a responsibility to conduct the basic activities to prepare and secure their organization and protect their people, their places, their data, and their dollars. And there's a critical part of that. This report helps understand and inform their threat awareness. And I think all things you talked about are really key to, you know, to think about and then continue to advance through proper preparedness and security actions. Yeah, great, great call out, Sandy. Yeah, and again, gate15.global, great website to go to, a lot of great resource information there. And as Andy mentioned, uh, some of the exercises that are being run uh, through that. So please touch base with gate15.global, plug, 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 right? Andy, round one is done. Let's go to round two. What's your topic you got here? 
So thanks, Dave. Good topics, I think, for our lead items. My second round, I'm going to come back to touching along the lines of cybersecurity strategy. And that's last week's announcement that the, a, uh, let me make sure I, I say it right, a US, the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Louis has temporarily, at least, blocked the administration's uh, planned water cybersecurity measures um, to help enhance security and resilience for at least publicly owned and operated water sector um, utilities. I think it's, it, it goes along with the strategy and says part of defending critical infrastructure. And it hits on a key point that we've talked about many times here, but really goes back to that whole collaborative partnership model, which is what can be done voluntarily and what is going to be regulated. And there's going to be probably going to go on, I think, over several years' time between administrations and Congress and the different approaches of the two major political parties. But I think for industry, the, the question really comes to, are we doing the right thing and proactively, one, securing our environment, and then two, when something happens, are we proactively sharing what we can with our colleagues in the community? And, you know, you and I have talked about the fact that I question that a little bit, right? I, I, I'm not necessarily supportive of regulations, but I think there's a whole lot of better that we can do from the private sector side on reporting incidents, on securing our environments. We know that incidents are not being reported, even within their ISAC and ISAO type communities, um, let alone more broadly than that with our government partners and others. And that's so critical for effective community resilience. And so I see the, you know, the, this fight's gonna be playing out, as I said, over a few years time between the water sector and other sectors that will follow. Water, as we said many times, and I wish Jim was on the podcast with us today, you know, to me, that's one of the two most critical lifelines, water and energy. So as soon as you see it play out here first, it's not going to necessarily be the same for all the other sectors of critical infrastructure, but there's an important area. And I think for industry, the, the key thing to think about here is what am I doing to properly secure data and to properly report and share incidents after they happen? And again, you know, we know organizations are not really doing that to the extent that they can talk with your legal counsel figure out what you can share ahead of time, establish procedures and your response plans to share incident notification, the initial incident notification, and then after the incident, after the postmortem, the additional information, the indicators that you can share to help secure the rest of your industry and the rest of our country. This is a fight against criminals all over the world, against nation state actors all over the world. We have to do our part to help secure our environment. Interesting to see this play out. Good report from Reuters. Our friend Tim Sparks of Cybersecurity 202 has been covering this well, including uh, this morning, Monday, July 17th, in the Cybersecurity 202. Check them out. Understand the debate that's going on. Think about mm -hmm. how it might relate to your organization. And again, I, I challenge all organizations to conduct those cybersecurity exercises and to think about how we can better share information proactively uh, with both other industry partners and our government partners. Dave, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it just really continues that theme, right? I mean, the the it's our responsibility. I mean, we have a responsibility within organizations to be prepared for these type of events and and to be resilient through that whole because it's part of that larger resiliency effort. Uh, so, Andy, uh, just clearly fully support everything you just said about organizational preparedness, making sure that we're doing the right things, it, and it really does come down to this. Uh, you know, like these things are going to happen in some form or another. And we have that responsibility to ensure that they are, we are taking the, the right steps, we are doing the right planning and preparedness so that when or if they do occur, and I really strong when, um, when they do occur, we're ready to respond. We're ready to take that next step. We're ready to make sure that we've minimized and mitigated the damage because we have that established incident response plan and a notification process. So um, I'll clearly echo everything you just said. So 
really good points there, Andy. So that'll lead into my next topic. And this is, I, I'm going to go on the cybersecurity side a little bit, Andy, here, and just talk a little bit about something that we've, you know, I think everyone long knows there's been a lot of reporting around there, but there's just been a new report recently. Um, and it was actually an analysis on assessing the political motiva motivations behind ransomware attacks. And this was released also last week, July 14th. Um, great collaboration here. Um, and, and, and I'll just read you the abstract because I think it really just nails it right off the bat. Although traditionally viewed as apolitical, recent developments suggest there may be connections between some ransomware groups and the Russian government. To better understand this relationship, we created a data set of over 4,000 ransomware victims posted to the dark web between May 2019 and May 2022. We find that Russian-based ransomware groups increase attacks before elections in several major democracies and companies that curtailed operations in Russia after the invasion of Ukraine were more likely to be targeted. These findings suggest political uh, potential political motivations behind these attacks. We also analyze a major ransomware group's leaked internal communications, which shows ties to the Kremlin. We argue that Russian government maintains an informal cooperation relationship with uh, groups by providing safe harbor from persecution and receiving plausible deniability for attacks to access skilled uh, cyber actors. Our findings suggest ransomware presents an international security threat in addition to functioning as a form of crime. Andy, I think that really sums everything up is what we've been talking about for a long time. You know, we looked back when the start of the uh, the invasion of Ukraine occurred. Um, you know, what, what was going to be the cybersecurity impacts? We saw some of the other developments late, you know, later this year, what some of the, you know, as Russia gets continued to push back, does that mean there's going to be an escalated events? What finally somebody did the research, somebody did the analysis, and here it is in this form. It's a great read. It's very intriguing. Uh, I encourage you to go through it. It's not a short read, but again, a lot of this stuff needs to go through and flush out. But but when we talk about ransomware groups, they're motivated by a lot of different things, and being connected politically is one thing because you know one of that two parts, the safe harbor as well as a lot of the you know there's a financial incentive for those groups. They know they're always going to have that part. It doesn't behoove some of these nation states to go directly and attacking. Uh, companies and organizations, because that, that creates a global crisis. However, if you use a proxy, such as a criminal group or another one of these ransomware groups, you're in a, you're in a much better shape. We've long talked about this. Here's some analysis behind it, Andy. I think it was really well done. Um, but thoughts on, on Russia connection with uh, ransomware groups or really any affiliation ransomware groups have with other groups? Yeah, I mean, I think, Dave, you know, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, right, where they're talking about um, ransomware or other threats, right? I think this really ties right back to the conversation we were just having with some of what I shared as well, right? And, and this report really, I think, just sort of substantiates what, what we've been talking about and, and sort of known for many years, that you know, there's, there's threat actors that's out there making money. And you know, we see the proliferation of ransomware groups, you know, Catalan Simpanu does a great job of capturing all the updates and all the threat groups, our friends at e-crime do a great job of capturing all the different incidents and, and ransomware uh, postings. But you know, we see that there's criminal actors out there to make money, but we also know that these groups are at the least in coordination with some of their government uh, entities. In other cases, perhaps just purely proxies for those government organ you know, entities. And so you know, th this goes back to the need to 
share information about these attacks, to you know, work within our communities to help defend our networks and understand that these aren't just single attacks on your organization or, or commodity attacks, but sometimes they're part of a bigger, more nefarious attack from a foreign adversary. And that's why we have to work with our government partners. And it's really a whole of nation type response to, to understand and deter these types of attacks. So I think it's a really good report. I think it is worth getting into understanding. And then again, to be able to go back to our senior leaders, or our CEOs, our CFOs, and help them understand the nature of these threats and that, hey, you know, there's a good chance we might get hit sometimes because if the government of Russia is out to conduct an attack against your organization, they, they have the ability to, to be successful, right? Not every time, but a lot of the time. And so, you know, we to understand the nature of the threat to understand how it can impact organizations, the type of geopolitical factors that can affect, you know, these types of attacks. There's a lot to process. Senior leaders need to understand it. Defenders need to be prepared for it. We need to be able to share information, you know, as it happens, when it happens to help secure our broader community. I think it's a good report, Dave. Glad you called that out. Yeah, no, no it's it, all all right on there, Andy. All right on there. Okay, Andy, we've gone through our two rounds. Now it's time for the our, our quick hits. Uh, I'm just going to go first with be, being the weatherman. And, and look, there's a great George Strait song called "The Fireman." I call me the fireman. That's my name. Uh, I, I'm 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 willing to think that I may need a song about I'm the I'm the weatherman because again we keep drilling on this and really the this is two weeks in a row. Uh, in which the East Coast really has been decimated with severe rain. It's continuing today. Uh, it continue, you know, it's 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 really weakening the structures. Now we've seen a lot of roads buckle. We've seen a lot of low line or some you know rural areas really heavily impacted by this and destruction there. And then on the opposite side, uh, or on two thirds of the other part of the country, extreme heat occurring in, in several places, setting new records all across a all across the country. Um, and then overseas, you're still seeing a lot of the same heat waves across much of Europe and in other parts. Uh, wildfires continue in Canada. A lot of weather-related activities, a lot of uh, just need to reinforce weather preparedness is a huge part. And I know we're talking about wildfire season is peaking now, hurricane season. We still have another month before peak season coming in there. There hasn't been a whole lot, but please don't be deceived by that. And then, and then we got to start thinking about winter weather preparedness. That winter weather preparedness should be starting and being talked about now, a full quarter ahead to start looking in, and understanding what you may need there. So, Andy, as a weatherman, I feel it's my obligation to call that to you. Go with your quick hits. Dave, I, I really like the way you're embracing your weatherman persona, and I think it's just, it's it's really critical. And the topics you're hitting are just so important, right? I mean, right now as we record this, we've got a tropical system in the Atlantic, a tropical system heading out to Hawaii. We've got wildfires in California. We've got more Canadian smoke impacting the United States. We've got flooding in Pennsylvania that took lives over the weekend. I mean, there's stuff happening everywhere. And as we said many times, Mother Nature continues to be the greatest terrorist there is out there. So I really appreciate the continued highlighting and, and that. Key point, but I don't want to think about winter from a preparedness standpoint. We have to start thinking about these things, even though we haven't gotten into the guts of hurricane season yet. So, you know, all really good points. For my quick hits, I'm going to go quickly because I know we're pressed for time, but a couple of things will include many links here in the notes. But uh, Chinese threat actors hacking Microsoft, and through that, other organizations, including Department of State, uh, interesting reports and announced coming out from Microsoft. A lot of commentary about that coming out as well. A lot of folks are pretty angry at Microsoft right now. 
interesting to understand what happened there. I'm sure we're going to continue to find out more about that in the weeks ahead. Um, some updates from the Hill as far as federal cybersecurity legislation. We won't get into that, but we'll share the link for that. Uh, Director Ray of the FBI was recently from the House Judiciary Committee. Some key highlights from there that we'll share in the links. It's a continued very political battle there as a Republican appointed director is coming under fire from the Republican Party in Congress. Interesting, interesting to see this play out for sure. The FTC is investigating uh, Chad GPT. That's going to continue to be a big topic as AI continues to, to spread like wildfire uh, throughout our environment. Uh, a couple more links, Dave, we'll talk about uh, an in, inactive uh, reserve call-up, something very uh, relevant to me, uh, satellite cybersecurity, uh, operational technology, and a new uh, advisory from uh, and the FBI. So a lot going on. We'll share all of those links, and uh, I'll hold there, Dave. Uh, that, I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I'm, I'm amazed that this is where you stopped here. But Andy, all great points there, all great links. We will include these in the show notes. Um, but this has been another episode of the Security Sprint. We look forward, we appreciate you all giving us a, a like, listen, and share. Uh, I will also note the, the, the other Gate 15 podcast. We've got Andy's uh, Gate 15 interview. We've got the Risk Roundtable, and we've got the Nerd Out uh, Security Panel discussion, which I have a great guest on this week, Andy, a good friend of ours. Um, and it's not a panel. It's just going to be more of a one-on-one. -on -one. I finally coaxed her into, uh, into the interview. So I'm excited about doing that. So you'll have a two for Tuesday tomorrow, Andy, with the Security Sprint and Nerd Out. Um, so I'm excited about that. But I'm excited about that, too. Dave, and just to tease some additional ones, I'm, I'm excited to be talking to a partner from Scotland this week as we prepare for next week's Gate 15 interview. So a couple of fun additional podcasts coming out along with these security sprints. So I'm excited to listen to the nerd out and excited to share the, the uh, interview as well. Yeah, awesome. I can't wait. You always bring in some great industry experts there, Andy. So with that, Andy, thank you for taking part and in, in, uh, breaking away from your vacation. I'm glad you're rested and refreshed. Um, and we will talk with you uh, next week, and I will bid you all adieu.